everyone, it's Alice here. Welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. Today I wanted to do a bit more of a personal episode around the theme of health and the way health is talked about in the doctor's office, in Google search results, on websites and of course in poetic language. What's led me to this topic is finishing a book called The Undying by a writer from the US called Anne Boyer. Anne Boyer is the author of a book called Garments Against Women and The Undying is her most recent work. It deals with her own journey of a cancer diagnosis and some very difficult treatment that she went through and coming out the other side despite some pretty shocking odds against that so not the lightest of topics but this was a book I could not put down I just loved every single passage it reads a little bit like Maggie Nelson's Bluettes in that it contains a novelistic structure but it's told in these snapshots these paragraphs that read almost like short prose poems So yeah, absolutely loved this book and it really got me thinking about the flatness of language around health concerns and how poetry can actually work to resist that. And where I wanted to share a bit of a personal story of my own is from an episode of my life where I had a health concern that I couldn't make sense of, which lasted for about a year and a half to two years. And during that time I spent so long reading stuff online and trying to make sense of the things that doctors said to me to try to give shape to what I was experiencing and I really felt how limited the kind of approved language around health was at that time and then reading The Undying Anne Boyer really challenges that and uses her skill as a poet and a writer to really deepen what language can do to express what it is to be sick and what it is to be in treatment and what it is to be deemed healthy again. Even those three words really as I say them I'm kind of realizing they're so binary in a way, sick, healthy, in or out of treatment. It's a language of certainty, and of course it has to be. But again, when you've been through an experience where you're not exactly sure what's going on, on the one hand, all you want is certainty. And on the other hand, if someone acknowledges how confusing things are for you, that can be be incredibly helpful. So just to give you a sense of where we're going and hopefully an idea of how great this book, The Undying, is, going to read you just a short passage to begin with. So Anne writes, it is usually someone's mother with cancer, at least in books, or their sister or lover or wife. In literature, one person's cancer seems to exist as an instrument of another person's epiphanies, and sickness takes the form of how a sick person looks. At a poetry reading I attend during my illness, A poet is nearly shouting and wailing poems about a cancer she doesn't have. Then another poet at another. Everyone's mother. Then a book comes in the mail in which the mother dying of cancer is, now that she is so thin and pale, 
compared with a long list of famous thin pale beauties. None of this literature is bad, but all of it is unforgivable. I love that paragraph. When I, when I read that last sentence, I think I ran into the other room and, and read it out to my partner. Again, yeah, not the lightest of material here, but hopefully I can tell this story in a way that at least expresses how exciting this book is. So my own experience with the flatness of the language of health. So I'm somebody who I think once or twice in my life has been diagnosed as having some form of anxiety. I don't love using that word to describe myself, partially because of its ubiquity, partially because I don't feel I have it as bad as a lot of other people that I know. And uh, yeah, also because it's a very, it's a catch-all term for what I think is is a fairly nuanced and complex state that is different person to person. I heard, I think it was Liz Gilbert in one of her talks talking about having a mind like a golden retriever or a border collie, that's what it was. She said, I've got a mind like a border collie. I need to give it something to do, otherwise it's just going to find something to chew on. And that's pretty much how my mind works. And for many, many years, the way that expressed itself most obviously, well, one of the many ways that it expressed itself was through this really intense hypochondria. So I always had, you know, if I had a minor ailment, I was always jumping to the worst possible conclusion of what that ailment could be. And as a result, ended ended up spending a lot of time in doctor's offices throughout my 20s getting tests done for things that I didn't end up having and being relieved for a short period of time until something else started to bother me and then the whole thing began again. Yeah, a really, really exhausting, not to mention expensive way to be. Um, Throughout this time I was getting help from a psychologist as well and and various counsellors and things like that. I don't think I really saw this approach that I had to my own health as an expression of what I guess we can broadly call anxiety. But looking back on it now, that is what I think it absolutely was. And it all kind of came to a head in around about 2013, 2014. I changed jobs. I finally got the job that I thought I'd always wanted. I finally got to work at a not-for-profit and I've been, you know, I spent like 10 years trying to end up in this sector and I was so, so happy to finally have this role and it was at a cancer charity. So all of a sudden I was spending six, seven, eight hours a day thinking and talking and writing about cancer which was on the one hand really fascinating. It wasn't something I really had anything to do with before. And I was really, really fascinated by the language that was used around that particular area of health. At the same time, if you put a hypochondriac into that scenario, it'll probably take her three to four days before she decides that she too probably has some form of cancer. 
and that's where I landed pretty quickly. And the reason was that I ended up with this condition, which after a long time I finally got diagnosed, called costochondritis. It's a very unsexy condition. Basically, the intercostal tissue between your ribs gets inflamed and you end up with this crazy unpredictable pain in your chest. And it's like weirdly referred pain. You'll get like shooting pains at random times. It's not related to any movement that you do. It comes and goes. It's totally not life-threatening. It's not particularly treatable and it is absolutely terrifying because every single thing that you google is like you should be dead by now basically you are uh you're a ticking time bomb like you're probably having a heart attack or you know you've got like every everything that you google around chest pain like just don't do it do not ever do it so yeah just like every single day i think for about a year i was looking online trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with me and i saw gps and i saw physios and i finally saw a specialist who just sat me down and was like you do not have a tumor you are not dying um which was really i was really grateful for she was the one who finally told me what i probably had but even she was like couching it in that you know there was that caveated language and yeah the thing that i really was convinced that i probably had before i finally went to see this person was some form of breast cancer this is where the language part comes in so what i was doing in my day was working on language to do with cancer and i was thinking about how we how we write about it how we write about not so much the medical side, but the effects that it has on, on families and the people that it affects. And then at night, coming home and Googling and reading the health information side of it and coming across this, again, this, this language that was sort of non-committal. And I would come across phrases like, with breast, with breast cancer, pain is rare, or breast pain is rarely the first noticeable symptom of breast cancer and i would fixate on this word rare because i'm like as a hypochondriac of course i'm like i'm the special exception i'm the one for whom this pain is the first sign and uh i've gotta i've gotta get this checked out like you know just totally totally terrified but then also being quite a shy person especially when you put me in a doctor's office and you put me in front of an authority figure I didn't really know how to advocate for people to check that out for me. I just kind of went along with whatever they said that they they thought I had, you know. I think scoliosis was a diagnosis at one point, and I just sort of nodded and walked out feeling totally defeated because I didn't know how to say like I'm really scared and I need you to tell me definitively what this is or what this isn't at least. So yeah, that was sort of, that was the, the outside work area of my life was, was scary and stressful during that time. And then at work, I started to understand very gradually how the language that I was reading on these websites that 
give you information, <laughs> use the term information loosely, how that language is written. And, you know, I would sit in meetings of five or six people trying to come up with consensus around the exact phrasing of a single sentence. And I came to understand the extreme caution that goes into writing this language. Everybody doing this work obviously is doing it with the best of intentions. Nobody wants to mislead. Nobody wants to overstate their knowledge. That, In fact, it's the opposite. I think people, yeah, they're, they're cautious to the point where the language and the information that you end up reading kind of becomes devoid of any information. It gets watered down to the point where it sort of doesn't tell you anything. And yeah, I guess, you know, I was really passionate about that job and subsequent to that job, I've done work in this area as a freelancer as well. And um, I've been at, you know, kickoff meetings where people will say like, we really need to provide like reliable, credible health information that also is understandable. And it sounds like it's coming from like your experienced you know, friend who's been through this before. It starts with the best of intentions. People really do want to achieve that. But then as the process goes on, more people get involved, more caution starts to come in and it starts getting watered down. And what ends up on your screen at, you know, 1am when you are frantically Googling and being scared is no longer helpful. Of course, there's the other extreme, which is, the information that individuals write and upload to the internet on their own, you know, on message boards and YouTube comments and things like that, which is, which is equally unhelpful, but because it totally is devoid of caution and it's just people's individual opinions. But sometimes that's, that's the only thing that you can find that will actually comfort you in that moment because it's actually saying something. Weirdly, when people do come to tell their own stories, there's a feedback effect too of that, of that caution and the way that the, the narrative of kind of sick treatment, health, and the smoothness of that gets sort of taken on board. So part of my role in this job that I used to have was to interview people about their own stories dealing with cancer and I started to realize that there were these hard edges and these difficult facts that people were not including, editing out of their stories because they didn't fit the acceptable narrative. As Boyer writes, these stories are not the stories that could exist as an instrument of another person's epiphanies. They were just sad or scary or difficult to metabolize. There's this wonderful passage here in The Undying about this exact area that I'll read you. So Anne writes, We are supposed to be legible as patients and illegible as our actual selves while going to work and taking care of others, as our actual selves now with the extra work of the false heroics of legibility as a disease. Every patient a celebrity survivor, smiling before the surgery and smiling after too, bold and radiant and funny, and productively exposed. We are supposed to, as the titles of the guidebooks instruct, be feisty, sexy, thinking, snarky women, or girls or ladies or whatever. 
Also, as the t-shirts for sale on Amazon suggest, we are always supposed to be able to tell Cancer, you messed with the wrong bitch. In my case, however, Cancer messed with the right bitch. One of the many wonderful things about this book is the way that it highlights the way that we will tend to smooth edges out of our own stories of health and sickness. There's so much confusion in being sick sometimes. There's so much uncertainty and doubt and and worry. And yeah, there are many moments where you, you do not feel like a celebrity survivor at all. And you know, this is just me talking from my case of having something totally benign, <laughs> completely benign, um, which, you know, I just happened to think for about a year was was very much life-threatening, at least on an unconscious level. So yeah, The Undying highlights this, the complicated nature of these stories and the way that healthcare language can flatten that. I thought when I was making notes for this episode, what would it have been like if Dorothy Porter had had the opportunity to write a book about her own diagnosis with breast cancer and treatment and ultimately um, coming out the other side of that? I think it would have been equally complicated and fascinating for that. I've also been thinking about Fiona Wright's book, Small Acts of Disappearance, which is also a fantastic book if you're looking for an an Australian example. It's fantastic for the way that it tracks the medicalization of a body and the extreme effort that's involved in resisting that flat medical language when it's being applied to a person. And yeah, I think just the final thing I wanted to say on this book is, and there's there's so much to say on it, and I have to really encourage you to go and listen to Anne Boyer's interview on Common Commonplace because it's it's really great to hear firsthand from the author. But one of the things that Anne is digging into here is not just language, and not just how we are simplified as as bodies when we're when we are sick but also the way that a capitalist system demands um, simplicity of you and demands a kind of flatness and, I guess, subservience, demands that you, that you don't come with too many complications or requests for your particular situation to be accommodated. I really love this passage. She writes, The exhausted are the saints of the wasted life. If a saint is a person who is better than others at suffering, what the exhausted suffer better is the way bodies and time are so often at odds with each other in our time of overwhelming and confused chronicity. When each hour is amplified past circadianism, quadrupled in the quarter hours agenda, pomodoroed, hacked, FOMO'd, and productivized. The exhausted are the human evidence of each minute misunderstood to be an empire for finance, of each human body misunderstood to be an instrument that should play a thousand compliance songs at once. It is really sparkling language. It's, I honestly don't know how she managed to write this book given what she was undergoing, what it expresses in terms of her treatment for her cancer. It's, it's really incredible. And when, when she's asked in that interview how she did it, she just says one word at a time, which is just crazy to me. So yeah, I'm happy to say that these days I'm not 
so much of a hypochondriac. That's not the way that my border collie mind chews on things anymore. I think I finally reached a point where I'd been through too many tests that I knew on a gut level that I didn't need. And uh, I just kind of got sick of myself and drew a line under it all, which I'm so grateful for. But it isn't to say that I don't find myself sometimes reading health information and just staring at it, trying to figure out what do they mean by that? What, what is it that they're actually saying? And yeah, if you're someone who's had any kind of cold symptoms in the last month or so, you probably have been in this space for a little while. And it is, it is genuinely frustrating, can be very, very scary to just not know and have the internet not be able to answer your questions. For all its omniscience, it just sometimes has no idea what's wrong. But I think that's one of the biggest strengths of a book like The Undying is its acknowledgement of the things that can't be known, can't be explained, can't be smoothed out, and its resistance to simplicity. And it resists this in every, every area from the language of cancer to the treatment and even into the language of wellness. I wanted to finish with this little passage. This is what Anne calls an asana of auto-exploitation. This is for anyone else out there who's spending time doing yoga classes on the internet at the moment. First a breath, then sweating. Now sweating with breathing then achievement, then email and sweating. Now breathing and achieving and emailing. Now working while breathing. Now failure and sleeping and breathing. Now refusing to sleep while breathing or attempting to refuse to breathe while still sweating and failing and achieving. I love that little passage. I love so much of this book. It's, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough, although weirdly, it's one that I would say make sure you're feeling strong when you start to read it. Um, yeah, definitely. Even though I couldn't put it down, it was definitely it was a tough one to read. But I do recommend it to you. And I hope that wherever you're listening to this from, you are feeling well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>